0: Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. Okay, this is the last of our Land Between series, and I'm just going to tell you right up front that um, I get a little, I told somebody in the first service, I get a little depressed whenever we put a series to bed, especially one that's been this good. This has been a phenomenal series from a teaching perspective. I have personally learned a lot through this material. And I'm just going to warn you, today has the potential to change your life. Now, you know me, and you know I don't get up here and say that very often. I'm just telling you, I'm holding dynamite in my hands, okay? And I'm just hoping and praying it goes off in this room this morning. We were joking, somebody, I was sitting out in the crowd before the first service, and somebody sat down and said, are you going to sit out here today? I'll take your sermon, I'll preach it. And I said, no, no, this is, there's too much horsepower for you in this, this is for a trained professional, so it really is good material. I, I really do believe that God is going to take what is said here this morning and and literally change some lives. And 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 if it, I just you've got to lock in, okay? You've got to lock in early. You have got to be with me through the whole thing because God is going to say some things through the Word today, and I really believe that it's going to change some people in here. I've already heard it walking out the door today. Some people said some stuff about. How good, and and it's not because I'm a good preacher. It's because God knows how to say what He needs to say. Let's start by doing this. Let's start by um, talking a little movie trivia this morning. Does anybody know what won the Oscar for Best Picture this year? Anybody know? You've slept since then, haven't you? Hurt Locker. Very good. Most people, when you ask them that question, a lot of, one of the responses you get a lot is Avatar. You'll hear Avatar, and Avatar was a great movie, and if you've seen it, you'd understand why people would think that, but Hurt Locker won not only Best Picture, it won six Oscar awards, and um, the Hurt Locker is a movie, it's set in 2004 post-invasion Iraq, and they've had a, a, a flurry of roadside bombs, go off. And so they've got this bomb squad there that is kind of going along and diffusing bombs along the side of the road. And so um, that's pretty much the story. It's a story about a guy named William James. I want to show you two clips of William James in action. And the, the clip that I really want to show you comes at the end of the movie. But before we can take that clip and make it make sense for our message this morning, I need to show you a clip that happens kind of early in the movie to kind of set it up. So Uh, This first scene is the main character, William James. He has just defused a bomb, and they start to relax a little bit, and then they realize there's more trouble. Here's the first clip. specialist Roger What? Ah, uh, got a wire. Hang on. Secondary. Take cover. Get in the wall. Get in the wall. You okay? I'll make you grab your seat, won't it? Just kind of, just expect a bomb to go off any minute. Now, as suspense-filled as that scene is, that is not the most disruptive scene in the movie. It's not a sniper thing. It's not an explosion that's the most disruptive scene in the movie. The most disruptive scene in the movie happens toward the end of the movie. <clears throat> There's really not even any dialogue for it. William James is back home. He's stateside. He has a new mission. He is in the grocery store with his wife, and she gives him a mission to go get some cereal. That's the second clip. We done? You want to get us some cereal? i me at the checkout. Okay, cereal. We're So, what's going on in that scene? Two words. Culture shock. He is completely out of his element. He is not at home there at all. He's in a grocery store. He's in the cereal aisle. Seems to stretch on for miles in either direction. There's an endless ball, wall of boxes to his left and to his right. There's fluorescent lights overhead bouncing off a buff tile floor this mind-numbing music playing he is lost and it's like he has no vocation he just is out of his element entirely back home it's not the same for him why does the serial scene work in that movie? it works because any artist, any director or movie maker, author will tell you that in order for a, con- a character connect to connect with you, it needs to be something archetypal needs to happen. What that means is something has to happen that helps you to connect with the character in the movie or play or book. And, and if you've ever watched a, a movie and thought it doesn't, doesn't do anything for me, it's be- probably because you didn't connect anywhere in the story. But this, this character and that serial scene works because we've all been that guy. We've all been at that place. And you say, well, no, Brett, I've never returned from post-invasion Iraq where I defused bombs for, for, the, you know, for our government. No, I, I'm not suggesting that you have. But we've all been at that place where we've been out of our element. We've all been at that place where we find ourselves in the serial aisle. Maybe it's a high school junior and they're in a new school, new surroundings and they find themselves with a cafeteria tray and they turn around and they see all the tables and they're just looking for one table that looks friendly and they used to go to a high school that everybody knew their name and they knew exactly what table to sit at and everybody was friends and they knew that but this is different And where do I sit? And who's going to be a friend? And I hate this. They're in the land between. They're in the cereal aisle. They're out of their element. Maybe it's a guy that's had the same job for 25 years, and this morning he's had to pull out the newspaper. And he's got to go through the newspaper, and he's circling ads, the Help Wanted section. And he's making phone calls and he's sending off emails and he's getting his resume together and it's just a completely new experience for him. And he's in the land between and he's in the cereal aisle and he hates it. That's why this sequence works in this movie. We find ourselves drawn to it because we have all found ourselves staring at a wall wondering to ourselves, if this is so simple, why can't I figure this out? It's having to get up on Monday morning when you've been the boss of your own company for 10 years, and now you're making your way through an endless maze of cubicles. And you've lost your title, and you've lost your business, and you've lost everything that was precious and important to you, and you work for somebody else now, and you're in this maze. You're just one more of many. Sometimes when we're in the land between, it's like being in that cereal aisle. Sometimes when we're in the land between, we find ourselves beginning to define ourselves not by who we are but by who we are no longer. No longer diffusing bombs in Iraq. No longer married. No longer pregnant. No longer a teacher. No longer engaged. No longer dating. No longer a student, no longer a realtor, no longer a preacher or a pastor. And one of the things that is so poignant in the biblical story of the Israelites in the wilderness is the fact that they are, in some sense, defining themselves by who they are not, not by who they are becoming. I want to show you the map again. We've been looking at this map for three weeks now, the land between. You see up to the west, the, the Nile River flows up into Egypt. That's known as the Nile Delta and it flourished and things grew there and it was beautiful it was also for the Israelites a land of slavery a lot of bad stuff happened there for them they had been enslaved there for generations and under Moses' leadership they leave the land of slavery and move toward the section that is in the upper right up kind of on the coastline There, there's a little more green up to the northeast of that little red dot and that is the land of Canaan that is modern day Israel Palestine. Notice that it is also green. Things also flourish and grow there. It is referred to in the Bible as a land that flows with milk and honey because it flourished. But they're not in Egypt and they're not in Canaan. They are in the desert. And unfortunately, they define themselves not by who they are becoming the people of promise, the people of God. That's not how they define themselves. They define themselves by who they are no longer. You see, when they're in the desert, they have been there about two years. They're no longer in Egypt. They're no longer in slavery. They're no longer eating the cucumbers and the leeks and the melons and the onions and the garlic and the fish that were so prevalent when they were in Egypt. And their journey in the desert begins in the Bible, kind of at the very beginning, and their first stumbling steps of the people of Israel are not their finest moments. This is not their finest hour. Their journey is marked by complaint. When they run out of water, they complain against Moses. They complain against God. They resent Moses' leadership. They basically say, you brought us out here to kill us. Take us back. This is awful. We don't like it. Then there was a food crisis, and again, they complain against God, and they complain against Moses' leadership, and you brought us out here to kill us. And finally, this boils over into the story that we've been looking at and what we've learned is this. You would think that not much grows in the desert, but that's not true. In our very first message, we said that the land between is fertile ground for complaint. All you heard in that first sermon was, we're sick of this. We're, we're sick of this. We're sick of eating the same stuff over and over again. This manna, they called it, this what is it? we're eating this stuff every day, morning, noon, and night, morning, noon, and night. This is all we eat all the time. And we boil it, bake it, we do all this stuff with it. Just, it's just awful. We eat all the time the same stuff. And finally, they're screaming at their leader, Moses, and they're griping at one another, we want meat to eat. We remember when we were in Egypt, we had all this great food that we could eat. They kind of forgot the fact that they'd been in slavery in Egypt. That didn't seem to matter a whole lot to them. All they remembered was the food. Sound like anybody you know. And so this all boils over, and today we see God's response to this. And I have to warn you, it's not pretty today. All right, we're not going to tie this up in a real neat bow and walk out of here all with this feel-good kind of mushy thing like, oh, this that's great. Isn't that great how that story ended? God saved the day. It's not that kind of story. This does not end well. I'm just telling you. But it is so instructive for us. I need you to lock in because the land between, this space we hate, this serial aisle experience that we are going through, this place in the desert, this place that we don't want to find ourselves in, is a space where God does some of His deepest work if we let Him. But this space is also the place where our faith can go to die. And some of the decisions, the attitudes of the heart, our actions, our reactions, and our overreactions can determine whether or not our experience in the land between results in spiritual life or spiritual death. So I I need you to kind of tune in today. We're we're going to turn to to Numbers chapter 18. Numbers chapter 18. Moses is asking the question, how in the world am I going to find food for all these people? I mean, there's millions of people. How am I going to feed all these people? They're complaining they want stuff to eat. And God's response is interesting. Remember, they're complaining about the manna that they've been collecting every day. And they're complaining about the way God has provided. We want meat to eat. We want meat to eat. That's all Moses hears. We want meat to eat. We're tired of this manna. Give us meat to eat. And then God begins to speak in verse 18 of Numbers 11. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. Now, this is probably some kind of uh, ceremonial washing that they're they're instructed. They're going to hear from God and they're going to get something from God and they're going to meet tomorrow. So he says, I want you to kind of set yourself apart. Can I just take a side here and say, when you're getting ready to come to church, I know probably for us we just get up, we throw our clothes on, we go through the unholy hour before the holy hour, especially if we have kids, right? And and things can kind of get away from us, but can I just tell you that when you're on your way to worship and when you're prepared when you're getting ready to worship, get ready to worship. Prepare your heart. Set your mind on the right things. Don't just walk through the doors and go, "Hey, I'm here. Let's, you know, let's start the party." No. Get yourself ready to show up for God to do something great he tells them consecrate yourself this was you know have the people prepare themselves for what's going to happen tomorrow consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat the Lord heard you when you wailed if only we had meat to eat we were better off in Egypt now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it if I'm Moses at that point right there I take a big old step back and say, whoa, you know, God is not happy. And can we renegotiate this whole thing right now? Because this has the feel and the sound of it, doesn't it? That you're, when you ever had the experience when your mother told you yes, but her teeth were clenched when she said it, and you knew it wasn't a good yes? You knew you could do it, but you knew that if you did it, it probably wasn't good. You remember that? And you thought to yourself, oh, I've hurt her. She's mad. She's <laughs> mad. And now, even though she's saying yes, I'm really not going to enjoy it because I know I don't really have her blessing. It's kind of where they are with this. I don't think God's real happy here. Verse 19, you will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. that's how you know God's hacked off because he gives you something to eat and it comes out your nostrils the Bible literally tells you that God's going to give you so much to eat that it's going to come out your nose disgusting isn't it then he gives us this because and this is important don't miss this you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying why did we ever leave Egypt we said in recent weeks that the land between is fertile ground for complaint, that it's, it's also fertile ground for a meltdown. It's also fertile ground for God's provision. Now we find out that it is fertile ground for God's discipline. But I want you to notice the crime. They were not simply complaining about cafeteria food. Because the Bible says, he, he said, Because you have rejected the Lord. That's the problem. That's what's going on here that has God so upset. The idea is that after two years in the desert, they're saying, we're better off without you than we were with you here in the desert. We're we're better off in Egypt. We were better off as slaves. This isn't just complaining about cafeteria food. This is a serious accusation of the Israelites against God. God, we we were just better off not being your people. We were better off as slaves. Very serious thing. The land between is fertile ground for God's discipline. And then something happens in this story. It's kind of wild. Moses, <laughs> Moses is trying to figure out meat. We're, you know, meat for a month for these people? We could barbecue every goat we've got you know, we, we could boil every lamb that we've got. We could go, I could send these people out fishing all day long. There's millions of people here. We, we could not eat meat for a whole month, not that much meat. And he's kind of scratching his head trying to figure it out. Then we read this in verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground as far as a day's walk in any direction. Quail migrations were common in in this region at this time. And and so it was not uncommon at all for the quail to migrate from Europe and Asia down into Africa. So this was a very common occurrence. And then it says, A wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. This would have been the mother of all quail migrations, by the way. And it says that the height that they were, were were three feet. I mean, you could take a tennis racket and knock them out of the sky at three feet, right? I mean, they're they're just there for the picking. For a day's walk. Literally, they began to collect these quail as much as they could get. Okay, they haven't had any meat. They see all this quail. They just start to gather it all up. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. Now... You, you look in your Bible and there's this little number or letter there by the word homers and it tells you, you know, you follow that and it'll tell you that's about 60 bushels. Every person collected about 60 bushels of quail. That is a whole bunch of quail. And then it says they spread them out all around the camp, presumably to dry them out, I guess. Now the axe is about to drop. Okay, now God's about to get really serious. Verse 33, But while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. You say, how bad was the plague? How bad could it be? Verse 34, Therefore the place was named Kibrath-Hatava, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. They died. They complained. They craved meat. God gave them meat, they ate it, and they died. And you go, what is going on? Does that bother anybody in the room? Does it bother you that your Bible tells you about a God who gets that angry and takes that kind of action when someone complains against him? And you go, God, that... That seems a little extreme. Does it bother you a little bit that this could represent the heart of God? This means two things. We have a troubling issue to deal with. And this is a great story to tell your complaining kids when they are complaining at the dinner table. (laughs) Honey, before you complain about eating your vegetables, daddy's going to read a Bible story. (laughs) They complained about their food and God killed them just thought you would want to know <laughs> eat your beans you go what god killed him complain is like a misdemeanor right i mean that's like a misdemeanor that's not a capital offense you don't kill people for complaining you are you crazy i mean god come on what what's going on Let's talk about discipline for a minute. Let's talk about discipline other than God's disciplines. Let's talk about discipline in life. We respect good parents who bring appropriate, timely discipline, don't we? If We're out with a, a, a couple, and they've got a four-year-old, and that four-year-old's acting like a four-year-old, and they say, excuse us for a minute. We'll be right back. And they take that little fella off, and they're talking, and they get off by themselves and they have a talk, and maybe a little more than a talk, when they come back and the little four-year-old's acting better, we say, that's a good parent. We don't look at that parent and say, well, that shouldn't happen. No, we say, man, that's awesome. We don't say that the, the discipline that's been exhibited by that parent contradicts the parent's love for the child. No, we would say, no, it confirms the parents love for the child that's what a good parent should do because parents of young children if they're thinking right they think to themselves I'm not raising a child I'm raising an adult Because if I let this behavior go, if I let this little four-year-old act like it is the center of the universe and become this narcissistic brat that no one can stand, guess what? It's going to grow up to be a narcissistic adult who thinks the world revolves around it and nobody's going to like him either. So I've got to take action now to make sure that that child grows up to be the right kind of adult. I'm not raising a child, I'm raising an adult. And so we would say, well, that's awesome that you understand that. That's great. That's great. This isn't true just with parents. This is, this is also true in the workforce. If you've got a manager and he's hired a, a, you know, a bright young fellow to come work for him, but that kid's coming in a little bit late and he's not really giving his 100% best. He shows signs of brilliance at times, but, but there's times he's, he's not staying all through the day. He's just not given everything that he could give to the company the way he's been hired to. And so a good manager is going to say, hey, could you come into my office for a little bit? They're going to bring him into the office, and the manager is going to say, listen we we got to come to, you know, we gotta come to a, a, an understanding here. In order for you to get far in this company, and I believe that you can, otherwise I wouldn't have hired you. I think you're brilliant. But if you keep coming in late, and if you keep leaving early, and if you don't give us your best while you're here, you're not going to last long with this company. So you either need to straighten up and fly right, and you can go a long, long way in our company, or there's the door. Now's the time to leave. We would look at that manager and say, hey, good for you. That's the way you should run a company. That's that's excellent. Great job. We respect good managers. We respect good parents. We respect good coaches who bring timely discipline. Why wouldn't we respect God when he brings good discipline? I want to tell you about Ronnie. Ronnie is 6'6". He's a sophomore in high school. He plays on the JV basketball team. And and, and he is a dominant force without even working at it, and that's the problem. He's not working at it. He knows he's good. And he could be unbelievably good if he would just work harder and if he would listen to his coach and if he would show up to practice on time. And the coach is on him all the time trying to bring the best out of him. Eventually, coach sets a mandatory meeting, and as would be expected, Ronnie decides he doesn't need to be at the meeting. When confronted about it, he says, I forgot. So the JV coach calls him into his office. Come in, I want to talk to you, son. When Ronnie walks into the office, he walks in not only to see the JV coach, he walks in to see the varsity coach there as well. And the JV coach says, Ronnie, I I just got to tell you that it's got to stop today. That if things don't change and things don't get better and I don't get 100% effort out of you when you're here with us, that means showing up on time, that means staying through the whole practice, that means busting your butt the whole time you're playing. That's the whole deal. Unless I get all of that, I'm going to suspend you for two games. And I don't care whether we're winning or losing, you will not play. And the varsity coach steps up and says, not only will he suspend you those two games? And not only are you going to have trouble there, but if you continue this kind of behavior and this kind of activity, you will not play for me. Now, Ronnie has two options. He can either accept this discipline and become the player that they know he can be. Or Ronnie can roll his eyes and act like the whole world's coming, crashing down on him and he doesn't understand how that could be. And he could walk out and say, they're trying to ruin my future. They're trying to ruin my season. And the coach would say, I'm not trying to ruin anything. I'm trying to rescue your season. I'm trying to rescue your basketball career. I'm trying to make you the kind of player that will be comfortable on any team he plays for because he knows how to do his best and he knows how to work within the system of a team and bring his best efforts for everybody. Here's the question what if god is trying to rescue something and let's assume for a moment that he is trying to rescue something what is it that he is trying to rescue now in, in numbers chapter 11 which is where we are and i need you to follow this cuz this is this is important don't get lost right here we're going to go numbers 11 and 13 and 14 just stay with me in numbers 11 they get the quail they get a disciplinary plague people die in the desert it is a heavy-handed discipline. Yes, it is a heavy-handed discipline. What could God be trying to rescue in Numbers chapter 11? If you flip the page and you look at the beginning of, of Numbers 13, you, you, there's, the Bible usually will put headings in there. That, that, you know, guys who later, who have put the Bible together, have written those headings. And one of the headings that might be at the top of, of your chapter 13 is exploring Canaan. In in, in chapter 13, Moses is going to pick 12 spies. He's going to send them to the land of promise. They are to go in and look at the vegetation, look at the people there, look at the fortresses. They're supposed to go bring back a report. They go out, they come back, they bring pomegranates, they've got figs, they've got grapes. They talk about how big these people were. We were like grasshoppers to them. They were huge. They talk about the fortified cities. It is just unbelievable because God is getting ready to send these people into a war. And he wants them to scout it out. And they come back and they say, It's the land we've heard about. It's green, stuff grows there. It's a beautiful land. But we were like grasshoppers to these people. They were enormous, and those walls are armored. And we're going to get wiped out there. And when the people hear this report, they start to grumble again, and they're ready to pick a new leader to lead them back to Egypt back to slavery, back to the leeks and onions and melons. Back to where they were. Back to what they knew. This is after two years in the desert. For two years, God has been saying, I I need you to trust me here. I I just need you to trust me. When you run out of water, I need you to trust me. When you run out of food, I need you to trust me. When the the Pharaoh and his armies are attacking you, Trust is the glue that holds every relationship together. I need you to trust me. Here in Numbers 11, they're screaming and wailing about only eating manna. The manna and the quail stories happen. Don't miss this. The manna and the quail stories happen on the doorstep of the promised land. You have to ask yourself, If you're in the land between this morning, you've got to ask yourself, could I be on the doorstep of the promised land? And here I am complaining and acting foolish and just giving God down the road and not being a person of faith. Could it be that God has something great for me right around the corner and I'm about to mess the whole thing up because I don't have any faith and I don't trust God and I'm really just complaining all the time? And these people have been continually failing trust school. And when they say, we're going to pick another leader and go back to Egypt, what what happens is, finally, the Lord says, I'm done with you. You know what? Let's just add another 38 years to the two you've already got. Let's keep you out there for 40 years, and all of you adults will die. And your kids will go into the promised land without you. That's what happens in Numbers 14. Numbers 11, where there's this manna complaint, you know, if only we had meat to eat, if only we had meat to eat, the plague that God sends is like a shot over the bow that says, hey, listen, it could be a lot worse. This could get a lot uglier than it is. And it's like God is saying, look, we've got to come to an understanding right here. we got to lock down and get some things right at this point. It's like God is trying to get their attention. People dying the quail thing in Numbers 11... It's like God saying, "Look, some of you, if some of you, if just some of you have to die, that's better than all of you having to die." And that's what's about to happen. God is trying to rescue this whole operation when he sends this severe discipline. And the chapter closes on a really ugly note. And you go, "What's this here for? I mean, what am I supposed to learn?" out of this story where God ends up letting people die in the desert. That doesn't sound like any kind of story that makes any sense to me. We've seen that the land between is fertile ground for complaint. We've seen that the land between is fertile ground for a meltdown, that it's fertile ground for God's provision. We've seen now that it's fertile ground for discipline, and now we get one more. What if the land between is fertile ground for transformational growth? What if God does some of His best work in those spaces that we hate the most? What if this is God's perfect greenhouse for transformation? I'd like to show you the map again. The people leave Egypt... They do not leave Egypt as a well-ordered group of God followers, okay? They don't leave Egypt as a people that are finally in tune with who God is and what God's saying to them. They leave Egypt as an, as an ex-slave mob, a bunch of unruly people that don't, probably don't have a whole lot of discipline, certainly not the kind of discipline God would want them to have. They leave Egypt as as a group of people who have been enslaved and indoctrinated in generations of Egypt idol worship. And they're crossing the desert and they're going into the land of promise and they are not ready. They don't know God. They don't trust God. They are not ready for what they are about to inherit. They're going from green space to green space, but in between, they've got to become a different people. That's God's mission. That's God's goal. That's what the desert is all about. I've got to get them ready to be my people. I'm taking them to the promised land to be the promised people to be my people. But they're not ready, so they've got to go through this transformational stage. The desert is trust school. It is boot camp. Dylan's here. He just came through boot camp. I got a picture on Facebook last night. Saw Dylan. He's snapping off a salute. I'm like, all right. I'm liking that. I said, hey, Dylan, how was boot camp? He just kind of rolled his eyes like, (laughs) whew, it's tough. I said, would you you glad you went through it? Yeah, I wouldn't want to know what was involved. I wouldn't want to know what was coming, but yeah, I'm glad I went through it. It was supposed to be this two-year period of transition from the people of slavery to the people of God. It was was to be the two-year wilderness transformation experience where they went from being Pharaoh's people to being the people of promise, and it was wasted on them. I use the term transformational growth. There's another kind of growth that happens. We would call it incremental growth. Incremental growth is just little steps. You know, it's just, it's just this little kind of, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's still growth. It's still good growth. But it's different from transformational growth. It's the kind of growth that happens when you're going to church and you have a job and your marriage is good and your kids are all healthy and everything's going good in your world and everything's happening the way you thought it should. Everything's on plan. And once in a while, God gives you something and you're like, okay, I can say yes to that because there's not a whole lot at stake. It's, it's incremental growth. And it's good growth. There's nothing wrong with that kind of growth because one of two things is happening to all of us, we're either growing or we're sliding backward. We very seldom stay plateaued for very long. We're we're not static for very long. We're either moving forward or we're sliding back. So so even incremental growth is is a good growth to have because it's kind of God's way to give us the chance to, to, to make decisions when not a whole lot is at stake. And it sets us up for better decision-making habits when there is a lot at stake, when it's transformational time. So the transformational growth, we like that. That's good when we can say yes to some things and you know God makes some good things happen and there's not a whole lot at stake. But then all of a sudden, we wake up one day and it's time for transformational growth and God says, okay, this isn't incremental anymore. This is big stuff. There's a lot at stake here. And I need you to say yes. I need you to tell me that you can trust me right now. And you're looking at how big it is and you're saying oh man god I, uh, I i don't i don't know i don't know if i trust you that much the kind of growth we're talking about today is transformational growth and it occurs when we get slammed it occur it's when the rug gets pulled out from under us it's when we did not see it coming and it's it, god what are you doing it's the kind that happens when, you, when the only words you know to say are, Oh, God. Oh, God. And you're just at a loss. And you talk to people who've been through those times, and you'll hear them say things like, You know, I learned to pray during that time. I learned to trust God during that time. That's when my faith grew the most, was when I went through that season when I really felt like I was in this land between. That's, that's where God really dealt with me. We emerged from the ugly season, and for the first time, we know that faith that came to us, we, we, we got it in that time. And we say, you know what? It was that season that changed us. No, no. That season didn't change you. Your reaction, your willingness to have an open hand in that season is what changed you. Your willingness to say, God, I will take what you give. That's what changed you. Because not everybody who goes through the season gets changed for the better. The people who go through the season and they have their hands open and they say, God, I'm willing to take what you give and I'm willing to learn what you want me to live. Those are the people who come out of it and they say, you know what? I'm a changed person. The land between is the place where God does his deepest work. It is also the place where our faith goes to die. I want to tell you about Jack. Jack's in his mid-50s. He's on his back porch. He hasn't been on his back porch in the seven years he's lived in this house. But he just had a triple bypass surgery, and the word from the doctor is, you go home and you rest. So Jack has come home. He's got an Audubon North American bird book by his his little table on the deck, and he sits on his deck, and he watches the birds, and he makes little notes in the back of his book, and he just saw a cardinal today. Huh. Lived in this house for seven years. I've never seen a cardinal here. It's because he's not been looking. It's because he hadn't slowed down. His whole world is run this meeting, run that meeting, send an email, send a text, make a phone call. If I'm not in a meeting, I'm setting up a meeting. If I'm, if I'm not in a meeting, I'm running to another meeting. And finally, his whole world came to a screeching halt when the doctor said, hey, you've got to stop or you're going to die. So now he's sitting on his back porch. He's got a Bible next to his table. And it's bookmarked the book of John. He's been slowly reading through the book of John, very casually, not in a big hurry, just taking one little story at a time. And he's just making notes, interesting thoughts, questions, a lot of questions. And as he's reading through, one of the things he comes to is this passage, and it, it says, be still and know that I am God. And he says, that's got to be the hardest commandment in all of scripture. Be still and know that I am God. God, that's really hard the land between is the place where God does some of his deepest work he'd rather do anything than be still he'd rather run a meeting, run a committee run something, but this sitting still is killing him but he's learning how to rest and it's awful and he's ugly and he feels humiliated he feels like the guy that's taken his first his first uh, foreign language class and he doesn't know how to do it and he tries to say the words and they don't sound right at all and it's just humbling That's how he feels, like he's trying to play an instrument for the first time. Years later, he's sitting poolside. He's got his shirt off, and the zipper is prominent for everybody to see. And someone comments about his zipper on his chest. And he says, oh, this? This is my gift. He calls it his gift. Why? Because God did something. Because God got him to slow down and to help him to see that there's more to life than just a meeting. God finally got him to see, hey, you know what? I made cardinals. I made beautiful trees. I made a forest for you to look at. I got all kinds of birds. I got things that I want to say to you in my word. He's learned Sabbath. He's learned rest. He's learned to to slow down. He's learned listening and observation skills. He calls it his gift. What if the land between is the place that we most deeply resent, but it produces the fruit that we most desperately crave. We say time heals all wounds. No, it doesn't. Time does not heal all wounds. Some people get hurt, and it festers, and they get bitter. And it gets angry and poisonous, and 20 years later, they are just an ugly, bitter, poisonous person. Nobody wants to be around them. Others get deeply hurt, and 20 years later, they're soft and gracious and approachable. And you ask, What happened? Choices of the heart. Our reactions, our overreactions. Will I become a person of trust or not? I want to tell you about Scott Rigsby, and then I'll close. Scott Rigsby is a person who wears two prosthetic legs. He lost them when he was a teenager in Georgia. He worked for a lawn crew, and he was riding in the back of a pickup truck. And they were on the way to a job, and a semi-truck passed him on a double yellow line, and then there was a bridge coming, and he had to get over, and he cut the truck off. And Scott was thrown from the truck, and somehow he got caught underneath a trailer and dragged for 300 feet. He immediately lost one leg. They tried to save the other leg. It took them 26 surgeries to finally decide they could not save the leg. They took them both. The cutoff time for the Hawaiian triathlon in sweltering heat, unbelievable humidity, is 17 hours. Scott Rigsby completed the Hawaiian triathlon in 16 hours, 42 minutes. He had 18 minutes to spare. And he's talking about the accident that took his legs, and he's talking about how when he was a senior in high school that happened he's talking about how he became addicted to pain medications he's talking about how he got depressed and became suicidal and and he's he's talking about all this stuff and at the end there's this question and answer period and the little kids start to ask their questions first and they don't know any better they just throw their hand in the air and how do you swim with no legs how can you ride a bicycle with no legs Then the adults jump in and they ask a little harder questions, a little more seasoned, thought-out questions. Which discipline is harder, riding the bike or or swimming or running? Which is the hardest one? And and which one is the hardest transition for you? Because you obviously wear different prosthetics for different disciplines. And finally, one last question. When did you forgive the semi-driver? comes from the back of the room. And that question assumes that he has forgiven the truck driver. And he said, I've been going to church my whole life. I've been going to church my whole life up until that event. I didn't give my life to Christ until, I, until late in my college years. And he said, I knew when I he said, I forgave him right after I became a Christian because I knew I could not become a prisoner to that kind of bitterness. And then he said, if I had not forgiven that guy, that would have disabled me more than losing my legs. He's right. When something ugly happens and we let it fester and it gets infected and we nurse that wound and it gets bitter and angry and poisonous, it ends up affecting life downstream way more than the accident itself if you don't handle it the right way. I'll ask it again. What if the space you hate the most has the possibility of producing in you the fruit that you most desperately crave? The land between is fertile ground for transformational growth. And the wilderness is also the place where our faith can go to die. And we choose. We choose. Let's pray together. Father, I know this because there are friends in the room with me. And I know personally some of what goes on in their life. And I know that some are in this room and they are in the land between. And, Lord, what we want more than anything is to be able to look you in the eye and tell you that we trust you. But, Lord, it's hard. There are circumstances in in life that just seem bigger than us, that we don't understand. And if we're really honest, we've wondered what you're doing. And it just seems like you're disciplining us. And it just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It seems a little heavy-handed. God, we don't want to be a people who has rejected you. We don't want to be a people... who who are defined by who we are not. We want to be a people defined by who we are. We are people of God. There's a promise for us. So God, this morning I pray that in this room we are willing to just put another foot in front of the other, trusting that promised land is right around the corner. Lord, we do not want to blow this on the doorstep of the promised land. So here we stand, God, in the land between. Eyes lifted upward, ready to trust. God, we need help with that. We count on you. We lean into you. We've got to have you. We're desperate for your help in this land between. I pray for the people in this room that you would help them to choose wisely. It's in Jesus' name we pray.